for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. But they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. Well, this morning we come to the end of the first section in the book of Romans. Paul has begun his argument a long time ago in chapter 1, verse 18, and uh, the end of that section concludes today in chapter 3 and verse 20. And uh, if you recall, Paul's goal in these first three chapters has been to reveal what is a universal need for the gospel. Uh, To accomplish this, he has introduced us so far to three different groups of people, Uh, each who feel that they didn't need the gospel. Uh, First, there was the rebellious person at the end of chapter 1 who basically says, uh, you know, who cares about God? Uh, I'm fine without him. I want to live how I want to live. And then we saw the the righteous person. I say that in quotes. Uh, They were addressed at the beginning of chapter 2. And uh, they, of course, also said, you know, we're fine. Uh, Actually, we're way better than you. And uh, this is kind of that moralist person that looks down his or her nose in judgment on everybody else. And then we saw at the end of chapter 2, the religious person uh, who said, I'm okay, I have religion and God loves religion. And so here's the problem. When these groups of people got together for fellowship, uh, they did not sing the old uh, hymns like, Come ye sinners, poor and wretched. Uh, They did not come together and sing, I need thee, Lord, I need thee. Uh, What did they sing? Well, they would sing songs like, I Believe Most People Are Good by Luke Bryan, a song about how most people are good. This this world, Luke Bryan says, ain't half as bad as it looks. Now, with all due respect to the country music fans out there, uh, though his music is catchy, uh, his theology is way off. Uh, But lest you think this is just a Gen Z phenomenon, Uh, Let me remind you of a song from a generation ago, and just to kind of take you back to the 80s for a minute, let me remind you of this one. I brought their song with me, and I'm going to go ahead and just play it for you. I want you to listen carefully to the words as they're on the screen, though. Check this song out. Let's do it. 
Chevy Chase, Caddyshack, anybody? Gen X, anybody out there feeling the love there? All right, thank you. Appreciate some friends in the back. Now, church family, whether or not you uh, are from the 80s or not, wouldn't you agree that that is the song of the world? I'm all right. Don't worry about me. Uh, Why do you have to pick fights? It's my life and it's nobody else's business. Uh, This is the culture that we come from. This, This is the water we swim in and don't realize we're wet. Our culture has lost its view of sin. Uh, We've lost it not just in our songs, we've lost it in our educational systems, we've lost it in our government, and we've lost it especially in our psychotherapy sessions. Uh, Because of the field of secular psychology, it's it's largely a discipline which has built an entire foundation upon the basic goodness of mankind. Uh, Consider, for example, Abraham Maslow, who who said, as far as I know, we just don't have any intrinsic instincts for evil. Uh, Agreeing with Maslow is noted psychologist Carl Rogers, who stated, I do not find that evil is inherent in sinful human nature. Uh, So gone is the ancient and archaic view that there's anything wrong with human nature. And today we find this whole idea of sin offensive. Uh, This is why Paul Washer said, it's not very difficult to get people saved today. Uh, The trouble is getting them lost. About 20 years ago, uh, there was a very famous psychiatrist, Carl Menninger, right in the mainstream of the American psychiatric establishment, who wrote a book called, Whatever Became of Sin? Uh, It shocked an awful lot of people, uh, and in it, he called the country to a revival of the consciousness of a sense of guilt. And what would be the good of that, someone asked him, and he answers by saying, here's why. Uh, The assumption that there is sin in it somewhere implies both a possibility and an obligation for intervention. Hence, he says, sin is the only hopeful view. Uh, This morning, I'd like for us to consider that Carl Menninger was right. Uh, The doctrine of sin is a hopeful doctrine, first of all, because it has explanatory power. And second of all, it points us toward wisdom and understanding. And so, yes, sin is not a popular diagnosis. Understandably, it's no more popular than the doctor saying, you tested positive for the coronavirus. Those are hard words to hear. But yet, if a disease is present... Wouldn't you want the doctor to shoot straight with you? How else would we ever know we needed treatment? Blaise Pascal says it well. Nothing offends us more rudely than this doctrine. Yet without this mystery, the most incomprehensible of all, we are incomprehensible to ourselves. So I acknowledge that this is a heavy and even dark topic today because sometimes Uh, The scripture addresses these kinds of things. And sometimes God says hard things. Uh, The world says, I'm I'm all right. But our mission as Christians is to change the songs of the world. That is what Paul is trying to do, to convince as many people as possible that they are not all right apart from Jesus Christ. And so find your way with me today to Romans chapter 3. Uh, We're going to work our way through these verses, and as you turn there, I want you to imagine for our text today a heavenly courtroom scene. Paul is the prosecuting attorney, and God himself is the judge. All of humanity is on trial for her sins. 
And we will see three parts to the trial today. Uh, In verse 9, we will see the formal charge, followed in verses 10 through 18 by 14 different pieces of evidence. And then we will see the final verdict in verses 19 through 20. The charge, the evidence, the verdict. Before we go there, let's pray together. Our Father and our God, as we approach your word, first of all, we say thank you for preserving this text for us so that we might learn from you, you today. And as we sit at your feet, remove from our heart anything that would prevent us from listening carefully to you. Holy Spirit, have your way with us. And what we, what we don't know, would you teach us? And what we don't have, would you give us? And what we are not, would you please make us for your beautiful name? Amen. Let's begin with the charge in verse 9, where Paul begins this way. What shall we conclude then? Do we have any advantage? Not at all. For we have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under the power of sin. Here Paul is finishing up his section where he was addressing the Jewish segment of his audience, and he finishes with this charge, everyone is under the power of sin. Uh, The religious are under the power of sin, just like the rest of the other groups. Notice the word already in this verse. Paul has already told the wicked that uh, that they are under sin in Romans 1.32. Those who practice such things are worthy of death. Uh, To the righteous, uh, concerning their sin, Paul has already told them in Romans 2.2, and we know that the judgment of God rightly falls upon those who practice such things. And now to everyone else, Paul says, we are all under the power of sin. If you didn't get it the first time, if you didn't get it the second time, if you didn't get it the third time, then perhaps Paul says you will see it now that every man, every woman, and every child is being charged with the accusation of their sin against a holy God. It truly is universal. Paul says there are no exceptions here. Notice the word under. The word under or under sin indicates that our sinfulness that he is describing is like a master or a king that lives inside of us but also reigns inside of us and rules over us. So it's not just that we have sin, it's that sin has us. And so with this charge of universal sin laid at the feet of the world, the trial moves into the phase where they present some evidence. Now let me mention in passing that for this evidence, Paul is going to quote Uh, from the Old Testament. Verses 10 through 18 is an array of different passages from the Old Testament. Paul quotes six Old Testament sources, Psalm 14, Psalm 5, Psalm 140, Psalm 10, Psalm 36, and Isaiah 59 to be exact. And here he is making the point that these charges against humanity are not new. They have been around for a long time. Now, delivering the evidence today are going to be three expert witnesses. These witnesses have been given full access to humanity, and they come with their objective findings. The first witness that he brings to the stand, we're going to call the expert investigator. The expert investigator. Uh, This person has made careful examination of the facts. He comes up to the bar and says with a very professional voice in verse 10, as it is written, there is no one righteous, not even one. We're going to make a full list of all the evidence that gets presented against humanity. So let's start that list. The first thing on the list is this, none are righteous. Can you say that with me, church? None are righteous. To be righteous, you remember, is a positional or a relational term. It means to be in right standing with God. It means we have not wronged him. To be righteous is to have never sinned against God. None are righteous. It's it's estimated that 
The world's population reached 1 billion for the first time in the year 1804. It was another 123 years before it reached to 2 billion in 1927. It took only 33 more years to reach 3 billion in 1960. After the global population reached 4 billion in 1974, 5 billion in 1987, 6 billion in 1999, and in March of 2012, we hit 7 billion. And for all of those people who are alive today and who have ever lived on the face of the earth, not even one is right before God. Some may sin more than others, but all have sinned and fall short. Imagine, if you would, three different people who get the crazy idea to swim from New Jersey to England in the ocean. One person, let's say, can't swim at all. They sink as soon as they can't touch the ocean floor with their feet. The second person, let's say they can swim, but they're a weak swimmer. They flounder for about 60 feet before they drown. But let's say this third swimmer is Michael Phelps. This guy is swimming out there 20 miles, 30 miles, and he's not even struggling until he gets about 40 miles. 50 miles in, 55 miles, 60 miles, he starts floundering. And finally, after 75 miles, even Michael Phelps drowns out there. Now, let me ask you a question. Is the one who drowned after 75 miles any less drowned than the others? No, it doesn't matter. Paul says, none are righteous before God. We all fall short. The expert witness continues, if you will, in verse 11. There is no one who understands. The second piece of evidence, I'll put it up on the screen. Say it with me, church. None understand. None understand. Understand what? Understand the truth about God. Our thinking in Romans 1 has become darkened. Our thinking is now full of self-deception. We live in denial. We don't understand. If you read through the Gospels, at least 26 times, Jesus himself highlights our lack of understanding. Remember him saying, if you can't understand this parable, how will you understand the rest? He told his disciples, why are you lacking in understanding? Uh, do you hear the word of God and not understand it? How is it that you do not understand? Again and again and again, the presence of sin takes away, away our ability to understand. We drink down iniquity like it was water. We know not our right hand from our left. We do not understand. The witness continues in verse 11. There is no one who seeks God. The idea here of seeking God is not just about seeking God for what he can do for me. The idea here is that I seek to desire to know the one true God and worship him and devote my life to him and appreciate him and rejoice in him and give him the honor that he is due. Paul says no one does this. It's been said that the unbeliever can't find God for the same reason that a thief cannot find a policeman. They don't find him because they don't want to be found by him. And so piece of evidence number three, say it with me, church, None seek God. None seek God. Jesus himself said in John 6, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now, take a look at this verse from 2 Timothy. It says, in the hope that God will grant them repentance, leading them to a knowledge of the truth. This is a gift of God, which is our only hope for God to intervene, because left it to myself, I would not seek God after God. And so if you find what is ironically sometimes called a seeker, someone who's seeking after God, be encouraged that it was God who prompted their interest in spiritual things first. There's an old song that says, "'Tis not that I did choose thee, for Lord, that could not be. 
this heart would still refuse thee had thou not chosen me. My heart owns none before thee, for thy rich grace I thirst. This knowing if I love thee, thou must have loved me first. None seeks God. Next, verse 12 says this, all have turned away. Isaiah chapter 53 says, all we like sheep have gone astray. I'd like to interpret this as rebellion. Our sin is not from ignorance, but from willful rebellion. And so let's put that evidence up there. Say it with me, church. All have rebelled. Uh, This fourth evidence is about intentionality. We turn aside from God on purpose. St. Augustine wrote a story about his childhood in his autobiographical work, The Confessions, about how him and some friends one time were stealing some pears. And as he reflected on that act of theft, Augustine said, it's so strange. As I remember what I did that day, I remember I wasn't even hungry. And secondly, he said, I don't even like pears. I was just stealing them because they were forbidden. I was doing something wrong because it was wrong, and I had this desire just to do wrong things. That's rebellion. Uh, The expert witness continues. The fifth piece of evidence, also in verse 12, is particularly depressing, as is most of this sermon. It says, They have together become worthless. Worthless. The Greek word for worthless here is most often translated to describe rotten fruit. Rotten fruit. In other words, there is a description of sorrow for what might have been but is not anymore. Humans were designed to be useful, to be pleasing to God, but our sin has spoiled us. We, in our sinful state, are of no use to him at all. So charge five. Let's put it up there. Say it with me, church. All are rotten. All are rotten. Finally, with a sweeping gesture, the expert investigator wraps up his presentation by concluding, there is no one who does good, not even one. Wow. Evidence number six, speak at church with me, none are good, none are good. This charge falls hard, especially on the religious person, and it stuns the moral person in the beginning of chapter two, because they were sincerely hoping that their good works would be good enough. George Whitfield said, you must not only be made sick of your sin, you must also be made sick of your righteousness, of all your duties and performances. There must be a deep conviction before you can be brought out of your self-righteousness. It's the last idol taken out of your heart. And so our first expert witness, the honorable investigator, has provided six pieces of evidence of our sinfulness, that none are righteous, none understand, none seek God, all have rebelled, all are rotten, and none are good. And Paul says, I have no further questions, Your Honor, and the first witness sits down. But we are not yet even halfway through our list of evidences. And so following him, Paul says, I would like to call up our next witness to the stand, your honor. The next witness is who I will call the spiritual doctor. This doctor has given humanity a spiritual examination, and now she shares her findings. And like all medical exams, she starts where? With the throat. Open up and say, ah. Verse 13. Their throats are open graves. So this seventh piece of evidence from the, the first from our doctor is a bit shocking. Her charge is that we are dead inside. Say it with me, church. 
dead inside. We are walking on the outside, but dead, an open grave on the inside. We are zombies, the living dead. We breathe out an offensive halitosis and rotting, decayed flesh smell. But as repulsed as the doctor is, being a professional, she continues her exam coming up from the throat to the tongue and says in verse 13, their tongues practice deceit. Charge number eight. Say it with me, church. Humans deceive. Humans, you may have learned in your life, are not truthful. People are not honest. I read a Barna poll this week comparing generational attitudes about lying. While three out of five of the older generation, 61%, strongly agreed that lying is immoral, only one-third of Gen Z, 34%, believed lying was wrong. But I don't think this is really new. Perhaps you're familiar with the story of Frankenstein. If you're not familiar with that story, Frankenstein is actually not the monster. Frankenstein is the scientist. And the monster who doesn't start out as a monster is actually born morally neutral. And this person can either choose you know, good or evil. Frankenstein really is a study of anthropology. And after the creature keeps getting abused by people because of his ghastly appearance, the creature chooses to become evil. At one point in the story, after having been in the world for many years, the creature and Dr. Frankenstein have a fascinating conversation in which the creature, now the monster, says this. I am good at the art of assimilation. I have watched and listened and learned. At first, I knew nothing at all. Slowly, I learned the ways of humans, how to ruin, how to hate, how to debase, how to humiliate, and at the feet of my master, I learned the highest of human skills, the skill no other creature owns. I finally learned how to lie. Humans lie. We are master deceivers. From the throat to the tongue, now the good doctor adds charge number nine. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Charge nine. Let me put it up there. Humans hurt. Say that together with me, church. Humans hurt. Have you heard the phrase, hurt people, hurt people? That's the cycle of humanity. We are hurt, and then out of our own pain, we hurt one another. The doctor continues from the throat to the tongue to the lips, now to the mouth. Charge number 10 is found in verse 14. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. I'm going to interpret this piece of evidence as meaning this. Humans don't forgive. Repeat that with me, church. Humans don't forgive. A mouthful of cursing and bitterness only comes from a person who has not forgiven offenses that are made against them. The doctor now looks very tired. This examination is exhausting, but, but she has one more piece of evidence. The patient was having trouble with their feet. So she looks down and examines them by saying this, their feet are swift to shed blood. So charge number 11 is as follows. Humans kill. Say it with me, church. Humans kill. Sometimes this is quite literal. Most often it's about seeking to push another person down who is in my way. I remember years ago watching the infamous L.A. riots. Many of us watched on TV as two men, Damian Williams and Henry Watson, pulled a young guy named Reginald Denny out of a truck when he was driving down the road, minding his own business. Then they took a brick and threw it at him and 
crushed his skull in, and they did this victory dance around him after that. And everybody's watching this on on TV. Uh, But when it went to court, the two guys who did this to Reginald Denny were dismissed and acquitted. And it it was not the fact that anybody lacked evidence. It was because their legal defense team convinced the jury that those two guys did that because they simply got overstimulated by the riots. In other words, it wasn't their fault. Our text today says that that kind of behavior is actually in keeping with the nature of humanity. We, we are swift to shed blood. And now... The expert doctor has given her evidence. Paul says, I have no further questions, Your Honor. I'd like to call one more witness up to the stand as the prosecution is not yet complete. Next up is the esteemed historian. He's an aged professor with a tweed coat and elbow patches. This scholar has studied generations of humanity and has noticed some patterns. He begins simply yet horrifically charge number 12 in verse 16 by saying this, ruin and misery mark their ways. You take any epoch of time, any civilization at random, and you will find ruin and misery and destruction. So charge number 12 is there is a history of misery. Say it with me, church, a history of misery. I know it's depressing. I know. Just stick with me. There's a book out there called The Story of the World by Susan Bauer. She says, if you study the history of the world, there are patterns that are unmistakable. The author tells her readers that the history of the world is a history of oppressed people who rise up against their oppressors only to a generation later begin to oppress others that they have overthrown. And the pattern continues and continues and continues. The ancient city of Troy is a good example. It was discovered by archaeologists in 1868, and when they begin to dig down, they discovered not only the city of Troy, but beneath it was another city of Troy. And beneath that was another city of Troy. Seven other ancient cities of Troy were found, each being built on top of the destruction of the previous one. There is a history of ruin and misery. Not just here, but everywhere. Everywhere we look. Our historian next goes on to the other side of the coin. Charge number 13 is found in verse 17. And the way of peace... They do not know. Next charge, charge number 13. Pretty simple, right? No peace. Say it with me, church. No peace. We talk about peace, but peace is a dream that never seems to come true. Consider in the last 4,000 years of recorded history, there has never been even one year of complete peace. Not even one year. No peace. Finally, our historian concludes with a spiritual comment. Charge 14 is found in verse 18. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Like any good historian, he does not just report the facts, he interprets them. He suggests the root cause for all of this trouble is that there is no fear of God. So that's our last charge. Say it with me, church. No fear of God. It's not that they don't see him. In Romans chapter 1, it says that he's obvious to everyone who's ever been born. It's that we were made, and tragically, because of our sin in the presence of God, with our eyes on him, sinful humanity does not bow in reverent fear, but instead scoffs and thumbs our nose and turns our back. 
And so the charge has been made and these 14 pieces of evidence have been presented to validate this accusation. And with that, the historian sits down. The prosecution says, Your Honor, I rest my case. And now we read verse 19 and 20. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of our sin. This is not good news, but it is important news, more important than any other news we will hear today. I want you to notice a few things about these two verses. Notice in verse 19, it says, the whole world is accountable to God. That's every single person. You may have noticed throughout this passage, this universal language that the author is using, all, every, none. There are no exceptions to this, Paul says. Paul's language is intentionally universal. Even to people who say, wait a minute, I'm a pretty good person. You know, I donate food to the food you know, pantry. I, I recycle my glass and my aluminum. I volunteer my time to do this and to do that. But our passage here is clear in verse 20. By the works of the law, no one will be declared righteous. So whether you are a Jew with the many laws in the law of Moses, or whether you have God's law written on your heart, the law is not your friend. As hard as I have tried, it is not enough. The law serves not to justify me, but to accuse me further as it points out all the times I continue to fall short. You might have heard of the Innocent Project. It's a group of investigators and attorneys who dig into old cases to see if the guilty are really guilty. Their website reports, to date, more than 300 people in the United States have been exonerated by DNA testing, including 18 who served time on death row. These people served an average of 13 years in prison. What an awesome organization and how horrible it is that so many wrongfully convicted people are in our prisons. Human courts can make mistakes. But when it comes to God's charge against humanity, there is going to be no need for the Innocence Project. Because there are no wrongful convictions. The more evidence I find, the more not less guilt and sin is discovered about me. For my God is just, and he does not make mistakes. And notice here in this text, it says, every mouth one day will be silent before this God. The language here is the language of a courtroom, language of someone who has nothing to say in their own defense. Every mouth will be stopped The primitive tribe has no response. The university lecture hall has no one with a response. Not Abraham Maslow or Carl Rogers or you or me will have any legitimate objection against God's judgment here. Literally every mouth will be stopped. And so I just want you to imagine, if you will, this courtroom as quiet as can be, as God The righteous judge stands up, takes out his gavel, and the verdict is rendered. And God says, ladies and gentlemen, the verdict is in. Everyone is guilty. Now, that's a scenario that could have happened. And God would have every right to declare us guilty in his sight. That could have been our reality. 
the first readers who read the book of Romans got to chapter 3 and verse 20, and they didn't know that verse 21 was coming yet. This is a just judgment of a just God. Let me read these words again to you. No one will be declared righteous in God's sight. Now, I realize that this is a depressing, dark, and not a very fun lesson here today, but we have to go here. Paul is taking us here because we need to hear the voice of God highlighting what mankind really is. There's a real need. And we won't appreciate the good news unless we can just for a moment imagine the bad news. John Piper says it well. This is the great lesson, he says, of the first three chapters of Romans. I am guilty. You are guilty. Everybody in your family is guilty. Everybody at your school and workplace is guilty. The clerk at the store is guilty. The bus driver is guilty. Your next door neighbor is guilty. And all the people in Yugoslavia and Kosovo and China and Guinea and Honduras are all guilty before God. And so here we are. Back in 19, I'm sorry, yeah, 1984, a Spanish Avianca Airlines jet crashed in Spain. Everybody on board was killed on that flight. The black box was recovered, and then they looked into what had happened for several minutes before the crash, and they found out that a computer had, had gone off as a warning system inside of the cabin. There was this shrill voice on the recording that began to speak as the pilot in the system cried out a warning again and again and again, pull up, pull up, pull up. But the Spanish pilot didn't know English. And so for some reason, he thought that the system was just malfunctioning and he paid no attention to it. And so they replayed these final minutes before the crash and they, they heard the box say, pull up, pull up. And finally, you hear the Spanish pilot say, shut up, gringo. And he turned the system off. I'm allowed to say that because I am a gringo, right? That's okay. <laughs> then a couple minutes later, the plane slammed into the mountainside and he and everybody else was killed. Now, God has a very similar automatic warning system here in the scriptures and woven into our own conscience that's been faithfully warning us since time has begun. And our nature, he says, is, is, is depraved. There's something wrong on the inside. There's something sinful here. And the warning of God is crying out to us saying, pull up, pull up, pull up. Now, we have a choice. We can either say, shut up, God, or, or, or you can open your heart and say, God, I'm desperate here. The plane is going down. Please tell me what you're saying to me. Holy Spirit, please, would you tell me how to pull up? A Latin dramatist named Horace once instructed his students in this way when teaching them how to write a good play. He said, quote, a God must never be introduced into the action unless the plot has gotten into such a tangle that only a God could unravel it. Ladies and gentlemen, the plot of humanity has gotten into such a tangle that only our great God and Savior could unravel this thing. Let me read you an excerpt from the Puritan author John Flavel. It's called The Father's Bargain. Uh, it's an imaginary conversation that uh, they say could have taken place in eternity past between the father and the son. You can imagine the father talking to the son about what they were planning to do. And the father says, my son, here is a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lay open to my justice. And the son responds by saying, 
Oh, my Father, such is my love and pity for them. Rather than they shall perish eternally, I will be responsible for them as their guarantee. Bring in all of their bills that I may see what they owe you. Bring them all in that there may be no after reckonings with them. I would rather choose to suffer the wrath that is theirs than they should suffer it. Upon me, my father, upon me be all of their debt. And the father responds with these words. But my son, if you undertake for them, You must reckon to pay the last penny. Son, if I spare them, I will not spare you. And the son responds, let it be. Let it be. In John chapter 8, Jesus encountered a woman caught in adultery. She was brought before the Lord Jesus Christ, and they're trying to see what Jesus will do about her. And I think in a way, she's kind of a picture of all of us, discovered in a shameful breach of God's law. But you remember the story. Jesus looked at the woman, saw the Pharisees who had dragged her there, and he said, you all who are without sin, you go ahead and cast the first stone. And then the text says, and then from the oldest to the youngest, they all began to drop their stones and walk away. The oldest to the youngest. Perhaps because the older we get, the more realistic we are about our condition. Eventually, they all leave until it's just her and the Lord Jesus Christ, the only one left. Then, of course, he asked her, woman, where are your condemners? And she says, they're all gone. And then he says those famous words, then neither do I condemn you. Now go and sin no more. Now, how could Jesus do that? How could he acquit her? We are inches away from the answer to that question in Romans 3.21, but we're not going to get there today. But let me just suffice it to say this. Though no one on earth could have thrown the first stone, God could have, and God did. The wonder of all wonders, the wonder of the gospel, is that the rock of condemnation that was meant for me was instead hurled by God the Father onto his own willing son who died in my place. And on Good Friday, the lawmaker became the lawkeeper and died for the lawbreakers. That's the good news of the gospel so that when we stand before this righteous judge one day, when we place our trust in him, we say with the hymn writer, Well, may the accuser roar of sins that I have done. I know them all in thousands more, but my God, he knoweth none. I'd like to invite the worship team to come and lead us in one last song. And as we finish Romans 1 through 3, I thought it would be appropriate to remind us all of a prayer that perhaps we all prayed one time. It's called the sinner's prayer. There's a lot of versions out there, but this is the one I like to use when I'm leading someone to Christ. And I thought it would be appropriate to offer you an opportunity to pray this prayer, perhaps for the first time, but for all of us, to pray this prayer again to remind us of our desperate call and cry out to God for mercy. And so would you just pray this prayer with fresh eyes and ears and listen to these words again with me. Dear God, 
Pray with me. I know that I'm a sinner and that my sins deserve to be punished. I believe that Jesus died for my sins and rose from the grave to give me new life. I now trust Jesus Christ alone as my Savior, and I entrust myself to him as my Lord. Thank you for the forgiveness and eternal life with you that is now mine. In Jesus' name, amen. Aren't you glad when the Father raised the gavel, the Son intervened and said, I want to do something about that because I love them. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, how grateful we are for your grace. We're sobered by this passage. It reminds us of our need. This is a present reality. The evidence is overwhelming. It cannot be hidden. Show us all our desperate need for you. Show us all the beauty of the good news, which is not that you loved us because there's really no such thing as sin. The good news is that you loved us even in our sin. And so while the world is out there singing, I'm all right, we thank you that you've given us a new song about your grace, mercy, and love. We thank you that we sing, I hear the Savior say, thy strength indeed is small, child of weakness, watch and pray and find in me thine all in all. Instead of singing, I'm all right, we sing, Jesus paid it all, and all to him I owe. For sin had left a crimson stain, and he washed it white as snow. We lift up your name today in Jesus' name. Amen. Can we stand and worship our Lord together?